This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 37 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I am joined by special guest Miriam Campbell from Skills for Connection. Miriam is a speech pathologist and a social worker who currently supports both clients and educators in helping kids to develop the skills that they need in order to connect and form relationships, as well as succeed in academic environments. This was a timely interview because as I am recording this, I recently asked my readers for some feedback on what questions they have when it comes to neurodiversity and also supporting people with ADHD and autistic individuals, a lot of people wanted to know how they could do intervention in a way that is neurodiversity affirming, but at the same time teaches their clients to be accountable and responsible, especially if they are engaging in behaviors that could be harmful to them or other people, or could just be preventing them from forming friendships and relationships with other people. So how do we handle those situations and give people skills and also address discipline issues? Because a lot of times we can't just let certain things go if people are, for example, stealing things or are 
physically aggressive and engaging in those type of behaviors, obviously we don't want to just say, oh, whoops, well, it's okay. You don't get any consequences. Uh, We definitely have to address that in some way, but we don't want to just go right to punishment without teaching skills. And so a lot of times there are issues with the way that punishments are handled because Kids just get a punishment, but then there's never any teaching or learning from that situation. So in this interview, we do talk about, aside from addressing that behavior, how do we do this in a way that teaches them skills so that they can have better critical thinking in the future and lead more successful lives? Before we get going, I always like to mention some kind of tangible resource that you can use if you want to take all the information that I'm sharing in these episodes to the next level. So aside from checking out some of Miriam's resources, I also wanted to remind you about the time tracking journal. In this episode, we talk a lot about problem solving and figuring out how to give our clients, our kids, the tools that they need and the skills that they need in order to make good choices during those day-to-day interactions. In this episode, we talk more about the social aspect. But the thing is, is that social situations do require executive functioning. They do require you to reflect on your own self-talk and beliefs about certain scenarios in your life. Now, the time tracking journal is a tool that is designed to help kids get through specific tasks using planning and sequencing skills, and also just to be able to reflect on whether or not they're working towards their end goal in that process. But one of the things that tends to be difficult is just being able to have the beliefs that you can be successful in a situation or reflect on your own behaviors and how successful they were in a way that is positive and builds your self-esteem and helps you to do better in the future. So I do share some specific strategies for doing that in the time tracking journal. Again, the time tracking journal is more about developing executive functioning skills and planning and being independent with day-to-day tasks. But a lot of those strategies that I use within this tool can also be beneficial if you use them with regards to thinking about different social situations. So definitely something that can be helpful to take some of these things that we're talking about today to the next level. So to get access to that tool, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. So for now, let's go ahead and get started with the interview with Miriam Campbell. Today, I am joined by Miriam Campbell from Skills for Connection. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. It's so great to be here. Thank you. So I thought we could start off by just having you share a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. So um, 
as you said, my name is Miriam. And uh, I started out, you know, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I was really, I always knew that I wanted to help people with relationships and help people with, um, you know, being able to be a self with all that, you know, everything that means all of our, you know, good and ugly and everything in between. And, you know, and uh, be able to communicate who that self was to another person and recognizing that that person has their own self with all their package and being able to be in a relationship where two people connect. That was always my dream that I always wanted to do. So I looked into a bunch of different fields and uh, I actually shadowed like a fabulous speech language pathologist uh, and I saw what she was doing and I saw that she was teaching how to communicate and how the language skills and the cognitive skills. And I fell in love with speech therapy. Then (laughs) I had not really ever known anything, you know, about speech therapy beyond, you know, what everyone knows about speech therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't realize that like, there was this whole other world about like communicating who we are and being able to hear and understand who other people or other, you know, stories or all the different language and pragmatic skills that we're trying to uh, support our clients with. And um, so I started to do speech therapy and I would work with all the social skills clients that were struggling with that. And I uh, quickly bumped into the challenge that my students also had other issues. And um, I felt like that I wasn't really able to get through to them very often because either it was a tension challenge or emotional regulation issue or all the different aspects that people, you know, as a whole package you know, as they come. And I went back to school for social work and I learned a lot about this other aspect. And I just came back to the table after, you know, doing that schooling and felt like, okay, now I have the cognitive and I have the language and I have the emotional piece. And then I bumped into my next problem, which was, I I saw that the skills, even if I could work on a skill with a student one-on-one, like they would not necessarily generalize it or understand why it was significant. Uh, I would work with, I I remember one specific student I have in my mind and um, darling, darling person. I would sit with that child and try and teach them about greetings, you know, specifically, you know, when you come into a room and when you leave a conversation and we were doing great, we did our social stories, we did our acting it out, we did all the correct, checked all our boxes of how to be able to implement these skills and get it into our pathways and everything. And then when the session was over, I just got up and left, (laughs) totally just left the session without saying goodbye, which was Mm -hmm what we were working on. And I started to realize that there was like other pieces that were missing here that we needed to really be able to be affecting, you know, real helpful skills that the student would be able to foster relationships and people would be able to take them seriously, you know, that people would, you know, see beyond all the other components that were coming to the table and understand this person, hear them and relate to them, you know, Um, that was sort of when I took a step back again and, uh, I started trying to figure out like, okay, what is it that our students need and that they need the generalization, but they also need to be able to understand why they're doing these skills and sort of have like a context for the value of these social skills. Like why, you know, leave me alone with this eye contact thing, leave me alone with this personal space, leave this, leave me alone with the topic maintenance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all these different pragmatic skills that we often are teaching our students. And um, I sort of like took a step back and tried to frame things within the concept of connection, because that's really what it's about. It's not really about any of the isolated skills. You know, what we are, what we hope for our students at the end isn't that they can maintain eye contact. It's that 
they can relate to another human being and connect to another human being different than themselves, understanding the other person's perspective, et cetera, you know, all these things. And so then I, I started working in the classrooms because I felt like if what I'm going to be teaching these students is going to be something that is about connection and about real life practical implementation of what they really need. I need to like see what it's like in their real life. And most of our students' real life is in the classroom and it is in the school environment. So when I went into the classroom as a teacher, I was hit with a lot of new information. What teachers are dealing with is like all of the speech component, all of the emotional component, plus all the academic component, plus all the logistical aspects and just like mm-hmm. maintenance and just all these skills and tools. And aside from aside from recognizing that like for me as a therapist, I had gone into my classrooms, you know, I wanted to support generalization and I would speak to the teacher and I'll say, oh, try and do this and this and this with the student. This is what we're working on. This is the progress, you know, which is all responsible and everything. I started to recognize like where the teachers were coming from and recognize like, okay, this is why the progress and the generalization isn't really happening in the classroom because the teachers are so overloaded already with what they already have and what's already on their table. So I really am very, very passionate about generalization being important. And I'm also very passionate about these skills being important. But then I start to recognize, like, if I really want to make this be something that can stick for our students and can really stick for our teachers, then it has to be palatable. It has to be something that our teachers can really do and something that's consistent that we're doing in our therapy sessions that's also consistent with what our teachers are doing in the classrooms. So that was the where skills for connection was born, uh, was from that need. And I went into my, all my work and all my, you know, notes and everything. And I really tried to get to the heart of what it was that I was working on with these students. What what social, what language, what emotional, what cognitive constructs I had been teaching. And to like, you know, get to the, the core of what it was and to be able to present it in a way in my therapy sessions that could be easily, easily transferred into a math lesson or could be transferred into a social studies lesson or a language arts lesson or uh, using specific phrase or terminology that the teacher could then help the student who's crying during the lunch, you know, lunchroom, you know, or is crying during recess or the therapist that's sitting with the student and afterwards and to make like a sort of cohesive way that our students can process their information cognitively, socially, emotionally, again, like, you know, from a language perspective, all of this data, all this information that they're experiencing throughout the day could have a consistent approach that reinforces what we're doing in our therapy sessions and also provide support for our teachers who are dealing with all these issues, all the challenges that we see in the therapy room. They are dealing with it along with 30 other kids. So, Mm -hmm. Basically, it's an RTI model, what I've developed, like response to intervention, where the therapist becomes the person that supports the student in the in the one to one. And, you know, if they have group sessions and be able to teach the either during a push in model, be able to do, you know, a classroom presentation or, you know, provide professional development for the teachers in that school in a way that like would be effective for the students and effective for the teachers. So that's, that's really what skills for connection is. And that's pretty much how I got to where I'm at now. Uh, You're doing information or providing information that is relevant for direct therapy sessions, but really also figuring out how to 
transfer that into training the teacher, supporting the teacher so that it goes across the day. So would you, are your clients mostly, are they therapists? Are they teachers who want support for their classroom? Are you working with students or is it kind of a mix of all? Very good question. So I had been working privately in my practice, uh, the bubble space, but now most of what I'm doing is therapist training. So I have like a therapist cohort that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a short thing that I sort of, my, my goal is to give therapists the tools that they can become their school liaison. And nowadays, you know, social emotional learning is the thing. And I'm so grateful because that's actually what it is. You know, social emotional learning is about the social aspect and the emotional aspect and put how to figure out how to get it into our schools, into our classrooms. And, you know, that's, that's like when you look at castles, you know, what, how, what, how they evaluate these programs, Mm -hmm. the effective ones are the programs that, are being integrated throughout the day, that the students are seeing it throughout the day. And that's really, you know, what I see as like, from a cognitive perspective, you can't, you know, it goes hand in hand, you can't do the work, do the cognitive work without the emotional regulation being there, because there's not really much frontal lobe brain, you know, blood flow to to speak to, if there's not that emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. But you also, if you have a regulation, but you don't actually know how to communicate or have skills, you need, you know, you need both, you need both pieces. Like, you know, a speech therapist, we know that that's why pragmatics is part of language. Like that's how we use it. You know, it's very, it's very central. Like I'm, I don't need my students to, and not that I don't need them to, but it's very wonderful them to be able to conjugate, you know, words and everything, but they need to know how and when and where and why, and, you know, to use their language and use all their skills that they have. Yeah. I've noticed this as well. And I think, because I support therapists as well and, you know, and parents as well. But a lot of people will ask questions that are very focused on the therapy session and the therapy materials. Like, where can I get pre-made social stories or um, mm-hmm. a lot of people like the idea. And this is therapist. They like the idea of a scripted curriculum. And because mm-hmm. I do a lot of work in the language and literacy space, that definitely works for that. But when you're talking about building relationships, that is something that, yes, you can have a framework and a process, but it's really hard to give a scripted, like, do this for every every kid kind of a thing. When you're talking about communication, I mean, there's just... I find people ask for that. They want those tangible materials, but nothing, it it ends up being so generic that it doesn't apply to anyone when you try to make pre-made stuff like that. Because how do you get, for example, if you're writing some kind of a, I don't know, a social narrative to help somebody understand a situation and understand how to problem solve and critically think during that situation how are you possibly going to make it relevant to them and help them to build those connections if it's something that wasn't written with them in mind? And do you feel like there's more of an emphasis on the materials and the the, the tangible tools rather than the understanding behind them? Yes, that is exactly like Karen. Like I'm like I like I'm hearing you speak. I'm like yes, yes. That's like exactly what I tell people all the time. Like we're, I feel like we're very much in agreement about this. That my um, 
you know, some things like I'll look at the existing social emotional learning programs or the social skills programs, and they'll have like these, um, you know, say this, then ask this. And that's very mm-hmm. helpful for somebody who doesn't understand it. But that's really, you know, what I'm doing with my, with my therapist training thing is that we get to the core, like of what it is that is at the core of each of these tools, because in order to be able to be adaptable and to be relevant to our students for them to feel like, oh, I want to use this. I can use this. This is how I can use it. And like, like actually immediately, you know, integrate it into their lives because generalization is what it's all about. Like we don't really care if they can do it in isolation in the therapy session. It has to be able to be generalized. Having a construct, you know, that's what I teach the skill constructs that this, that the therapists understand and can, you know, be able to apply like this week I got um we have this you know as part of the cohort we have this this whatsapp group and it was so sweet to see because these therapists are texting like oh I use this construct like this and like another therapist said oh I use the exact same construct like this because if they understand the concept of what it is at the core that we're trying to teach like what 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 specific way of of understanding cognitively emotionally their environment then it's so much more flexibility and adaptability, you know, across the board. And and they're very, you know, they're, people are asking me for materials. I, these are the materials. Like, these are the very core, simple, simple constructs. And like, if you look at it, it looks like, like, you know, a Venn diagram. I didn't invent Venn diagram. But teaching therapists how to understand, this is how I use this. This is how I can use this for problem solving. This is how I could use it for perspective taking. This is how I could use it for cause and effect. This is how I could use it for sequencing. It's a game changer when when you don't look at it, like as you're saying, as like, okay, let me just read this script and let me just, you know, spit back whatever this specific story is. But like thinking about like, okay, so what is the core lesson here? And what does that have to do with our student? How do I plug in the concepts of what the student just dealt with in their fight with their classmate or with their teacher or their process that they're going through, how can they experience that in a way that promotes healthier life skills and healthier connection skills. So we're talking very high level here about, and I think that most people would agree that both both parents and therapists and teachers, I think all those groups would agree that if you work on something in a really structured, isolated setting, that it's not necessarily going to transfer over to a real life situation like a classroom or like a real social interaction out, you know, in the lunchroom or in the hallway or, you know, maybe even outside of school in the home or during some kind of extracurricular. But can you think of some, and obviously without providing any identifying information about specific clients to preserve privacy, but can you think of any specific situations where you weren't getting generalization because things were not connecting. So maybe people were considering just cognitive skills and not necessarily considering emotional regulation, for example. Can you think of specific cases or or a specific case that you could share where there wasn't, you weren't making the connection and you problem solved through that to help someone transfer a skill over to a real life situation? 
that's always almost the starting point. What you're describing is like, yeah. there's that disconnect, you know, that I, I know something in my heart, but I don't know, I can't get my brain to understand it. Or I know it in my brain, but I can't actually carry it out. Like I know, you know, like very basically, like I know that I shouldn't eat, you know, this entire chocolate bar in one sitting, but somehow <laughs> I eat the entire yeah. chocolate bar in one sitting, you know, where right. that, that disconnect happens. And that happens, you know, a hundred times. I have students like, uh, who, um, there's one student I'm thinking of, and I'm going to change the details. It's a little bit different, but um, this student uh, was diagnosed with ADHD, and um, he would describe how he felt like, you know, one-on-one, he could tell me all the problem-solving techniques that he could use when he encountered a conflict with another student. In theory, it was all Mm -hmm. in theory, yet in the classroom, None of it was being transferred. Now, when we talk about emotional regulation, there is so, so, so much to it. Like, I'm actually this week's uh, in the cohort. This week's class is emotional regulation, so I've been like really loving this. Uh, you know, exploring like different ways of presenting the concept. But like, simply said, emotional regulation is a lifelong process. And when we encounter our students and we think about them as far as like, okay, like. Are they going to be able to control themselves tomorrow in class? And then is that the proper way of measuring success or not success within emotional regulation? Or is it meaning, but then if if, if we don't, like the pros and cons of that, if we don't, then how do we measure it? And if we do, then is that an effect, like, is that an honest measure, measurement? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, think of yourself as, as what you were like as a teenager and think of what you were like now and think about what you were like from a teenager and think about what you were like when you were seven years old. There, The amount of progress that people develop and some of it is natural maturity and some of it is active work and the therapeutic process and everything like that. But when we talk about things like emotional regulation, you can think of an adult who honks their horn and holds the horn down for a long time. It has that adult mastered emotional regulation or not. And I'm not talking about somebody who's trying to stop someone from crashing into them. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I'm talking <laughs> you know, more about road rage kind of situation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And when we think about um, ourselves as a continuum, and, and the reason why I'm talking about like, you know, even adults, and we think about the process of, okay, so this student can in, in, in their therapy session conceptualize what the correct thing to do is, but in the classroom punches his classmate. Now, where's the disconnect there? Now, there is a huge, there's so much science that goes into this of understanding like, you know, emotion is like one of the fastest brain processes that happen in, you know, in your experience. Think about like the last time you got angry, Mm -hmm. like how you could like flip a switch, see red suddenly, like you could feel like losing control, like, you know, your kid dumped all the water out of the bathtub and now suddenly, or the student, you know, uh, turned the lights off or the student ran out of the classroom and suddenly you're in fight or flight. Right now, when we think about our students and we think about them struggling with emotional regulation, we have to be extremely honest with ourselves and compassionate with ourselves to be able to support our students with emotional regulation. So when I'm encountering that student that is, you know, goes from understanding in theory how to problem solve that kid who went a little bit into his personal space and then got punched, you know, that he punched him, um, understanding like, okay, so I've experienced anger now. What would help me if I was feeling in a place of anger? What could help me? When we see our students as people who are growing people, just like we see ourselves as that that way, you know, we see it, we see ourselves as 
good, mm-hmm. growing, you know, we make mistakes, but we're growing people. When we interact with our students and we see them, that makes all the difference. That takes the shift from this is a student who can't do this in, a, in the, who can do this in a therapy session and can't do it out of the classroom it, in real life. That sort of, it flips it on its head because then it becomes about process and it becomes about evolution. And then we can start thinking creatively. Okay. This isn't like a catastrophe. This is okay. Now, how can this student grow in their emotional regulation? So all that was just to say that when we see our students as as a process, as being in this part of this larger picture where it's not like, okay, you know, therapeutically, I have to show my results to the insurance and this amount of space. And we can, we can make it measurable and we can, you know, wait, figure out like terminology that would, you know, fit the insurance bill that we need to fit and make sure that we're really doing something systematic and evidence-based and everything like that. But being able to see that process is, I find the biggest change for students because then when I'm in that mode of creativity, when I see them as people in process, as a therapist, I have an opportunity to start noticing their successes. When you're in creativity, you can notice uh, with curiosity and openness. So then you're in that place where it's like, okay, here is this person that's developing this skill. Now, when I see them uh, achieving this emotional regulation, how can I build that? Because that's what I want to do. It's strength-based. Where can I build what they have? Obviously, we're addressing the challenge, but how can we build on their strengths? But when we start re- celebrating whatever victory we have, that doesn't mean Pollyanna and pretend that the whole situation was wonderful. We could still, you know, use the cause and effect, do a problem solving, do all these different exercises that helping them. But if we're going to really affect change, we have to build people. We have to support them and support connection, support their skills, like from w- where they're at. So looking at that student. Being able to think, okay, so like, when have you been able to experience self-control? And, you know, he got to a point where he could tell me that when he was feeling anxious, he actually, his ADHD did not kick in. And from that place of curiosity. What did he mean by that? Like, what did he mean that his ADHD didn't kick in? He said that, like, uh, if he would walk down the street or normally he would, uh, you know, act in a certain way. When he was anxious that people would look at him weirdly, he was able to act in a way that was not harmful to anyone else that wouldn't punch anybody else or bother anyone else. Like, because he cared more about the connection in that place of other awareness and care for another that he had mm-hmm. that capacity in that place to control himself. Then he saw like, I'm a person that can actually make choices in my life. And even that, those, that strong emotional experience creates like a, an alternative way of experiencing emotion. And then there's all these emotional exercise, you know, regulation exercises that you could do where you have like, um, you know, uh, all these tensing up and then relaxing, tensing up, mm-hmm. relaxing, where the body sort of practices getting into its motor behavior planning of how to regulate what from a place of tension, from a place of anger or practicing, um, you know, breathing or mindfulness or all these things that increase the amount of resilience and inner safety that we have. So when we go to fight or flight, we can maybe go there a little bit, you know, with a little bit less frequency or Mm -hmm. go there maybe a little less intensely and, and seeing that and celebrating those moments and seeing this as a process that to me is like the biggest change that helps us get from a theory in the therapy session to real life that, paradigm shift where we see it as a process and we start being able to be curious and open to understanding what this 
you know, who, who it is that either ourselves or the other person that we're working with to understand where they're coming from, what their experience is, they suddenly have all these doors open to themselves. Like now the student understand like, okay, I'm not a victim to my ADHD. What is happening in my body when I experience anxiety? Okay, so the, my heart is pounding, my sweat, my palms are sweaty. Oh, that's the same experience I get when I'm excited. Oh, okay. So I can channel this. I could sort of become a master of this. And through these exercises where they can practice, you know, all these research that shows that, you know, people can use their test performance anxiety and actually perform better because it becomes about excitement and translating our own emotional experience. When we have that openness and that shift to process and that shift to, uh, to curiosity, we've suddenly now open doors for our, our clients and open doors to being able to make something that is isolated in the therapy session, you know, to real life. That's like just from emotional regulation. It's not typically, you know, that, that would be the emotional regulation component. That's not like typically what we do for the language aspects or the cognitive aspects, yeah. you know, but just, I, I think that emotion is, it's its own world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause when you think about you, if you are not in the parts of your brain that allow you to process language or critically think, how can you use any of the skills that you know or that you have already cognitively language? I, f I find it interesting that the student said, my ADHD didn't kick in. Do you think it's problematic or is there a way that we could shift that thinking that he had about his ADHD like like me having ADHD is causing me to be quote bad. Is there a way that we could shift that for students so that they don't see it as like ADHD bad, not ADHD good versus, okay, this is a part of me, but it doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad or is, do you know what I'm saying? I, I like, yeah. is there a way that we could shift that to not necessarily see that as something that is broken that needs to be fixed, but rather as something that is a difference that, you know, again, could be beneficial in some situations, but not beneficial in others type of thing. Yes, for sure. For sure. Any skill that people are dealing with, but that's something that we definitely do. Like as part of uh, one of our mindfulness exercises, I'll go, I go through with my students and, you know, we identify all the different uh, sensory input that they're experiencing at the time. And I, you know, I have my whole, my whole, you know, skill construct that we go through and as they're adding and adding and adding and adding and adding things, I usually will take the time and point out and be like, whoa, check out how amazing your body is, how much information it's able to collect. Mm -hmm. Now, my students with ADHD usually can get like probably almost double the amount of data that a student who does not have ADHD, they'll mm, hear everything like they're, they could hear like the air conditioning from the classroom next door or from upstairs or somebody, you know, they could figure out what is what sound is rolling on the ceiling above them like, oh, that was a suitcase or that was like, they could hear everything and being yeah. able to point that out to them when our therapists really are skilled with all these constructs they they're able to like use it fluidly and mm -hmm. then do the thing like okay so like where you know how in what ways is this something that you will be amazing for you like oh when you're you know when you're a parent and you want to try and you know 
take care of dinner and uh, making a shopping list and watch your child and make sure that the, you know, the FedEx guy at the store is there and all these yeah. different things that are happening. You'll be able to simultaneously keep track of that. Cause you have that. Okay. And where are the places that it's challenging? Okay. So it's really hard when you have to sit in the classroom the whole time, or let's say you have to, um, uh, you know, keep, organize which papers are you have to bring home for homework and having the student be able to recognize, okay, these are strengths and these are weaknesses. And I don't mind calling them places of challenge because, you know, for us to tell our student like, oh, no, this is just a strength. Yeah. A, they won't believe us. And B, that's also not really validating for their experience because they are struggling. Right. But if they mm-hmm. see it as something that as something that like, oh, this is, this is crippling. And they see themselves like, oh, you know, the, the concept, like uh, everyone should understand me like this. (laughs) Right. Exact. All the control is in everyone else's hands. That is not, that's a victim mentality. That's not going to help support them in trying to develop the skills of their strengths and also be able to develop skills for their areas that they have challenges. I have, I'm thinking of one specific client that this student is, uh, I think the, best employee in 60, 60 stores up as part of their, their company's chain, best employee. They, they, you know, with their challenges, their challenges are exactly what they need for the person to be able to perform extremely, extremely well in their, in their environment where um, they actually recently contacted me and said like, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure what to do because I have to keep my headphones off in order to hear if I'm being paged, but the sound of the, all the devices in the building and the sound of the music playing in the background is driving me crazy, you know? And then it's like, okay, so how do you want to deal with this? You know, let's, again, let's see the strength and what you're, what you've been able to accomplish. And now how are you going to address the challenges? And like, that's really that really in my mind is a skill for connection. Like how do we find the strengths in ourselves and in others and connect to that and learn how to address ourselves with our challenges because we were born with them and we were born to have them. That's what grows us, you know, mm-hmm. and, and being able to work that, um, that dynamic and, and helping our students see themselves not as victims to any diagnosis or to any challenge, but to able to, both celebrate and work through the challenge while keeping our sense of, okay, this is mine to take care of. It's not anyone else's to, you know, they have to see me in this certain way, but I can take care of responsibility for what I was given and who I choose to be with all of that I was given. That That's sort of how I would answer that. Mm-hmm. Let me ask this, because this kind of goes along with what you were saying about taking responsibility rather than seeing yourself as a victim, but at the same time, acknowledging what situations might be challenging for you based on the way you are wired neurologically. Mm -hmm. How do you teach both your clients and the teachers and therapists that you're working with to help people to, I guess, affirm their neurological profile, meaning that, you know, we don't want to necessarily just teach people to have to fit into a certain environment if it just doesn't work well for them. So for that specific example, it was, you know, for your your clients, it was very noisy. A lot of people, a lot of people who might be neurotypical would be okay in that environment, but in that situation, it just didn't work for them. Or for example, someone who has ADHD, well, yes, we expect 
most kids to be able to sit still in their desks. But for them, that situation is extremely dysregulating to them and they're not able to listen and focus if they have to just sit in a chair without moving. So how do we acknowledge those things and accommodate those things, but at the same time, help clients to advocate for themselves, but also take responsibility. Because again, like you said, we don't want them to be engaging in behaviors that are harmful harmful to themselves or other people. How do you find that balance? In my mind, it gets down to connection. It comes down to when we engage with ourselves and we look at our own selves. Uh, you know, when I tell, I tell my therapist this and I tell my teachers this, and I tell my parents this that I'm working with. And we look at it inside our own selves with honesty and integrity. And we know we have our strengths and we know we have our weaknesses. And when we can see ourselves flexibly and we can see ourselves as, okay, how can I achieve? How can I succeed? Then every problem has a way of, of addressing it. When we're looking for ways to address them, we find them. You know, we have incredible capacities of creativity, incredible uh, potential for that. That doesn't therefore mean that problems go away. I remember there was a student that I was working with, you know, he, he wasn't diagnosed uh, with ASD um, because his parents didn't want to go get him uh, evaluated. And he was having a hard time with his peers. He was having a hard time with all the teachers. He was having a hard time, like everything in his life. He was miserable. The student was literally miserable. You know, I remember as, as, as a teacher at some points, you know, and I, I had the awareness of where he was coming from. I understood where he was coming from. And uh, at times, you know, as a teacher, you have a whole classroom. At times you have the flexibility and the time and the bandwidth to be able to address the student's very unique needs amongst the whole class, right? So like, let's say the student uh, would almost never look at the board and almost never look at anyone else around them. They only looked at their desk. At his, he was only looking at his desk and he was looking at the um, the images that he was drawing. Um, you know, he would all day long, he would draw these images. Um, and uh, that, that was where his world was. Now, at the beginning, when I started teaching him, I did not realize that he was very much attuned to what was going on in the classroom because his his body language was not communicating that. So I would sometimes ask a question and he would call out the answer. And I'd be like, whoa, who knew that he was even with us? Right. Mm -hmm. And that gave me an opportunity for two things. One is to let him know that I could see where he was. So I could say to him, oh, I saw you were listening now. Reinforce what I wanted, which is to see that he was listening, that he was gaining and he was learning, which is why he was in school. He needs to be able to learn and be able to be able to function as an adult in this world. Um, and it also gave me an opportunity to start. Uh, so I was able to reinforce what we wanted for him. And it also gave me an understanding of like, okay, so this is how he functions a little bit more. Now, as the year progressed, what I wanted him to understand was that he was communicating to everyone else who was, who did not understand that, meaning all of his classmates who mm-hmm. really had so, sort of written him off because he was not, he was not addressing anyone in the class. He was not, he was in his own world and he would cry that he doesn't have any friends, but he wasn't engaging with anybody. None of the other peers were like, it wasn't, it wasn't a malicious thing. I saw the other peers, they were not being malicious, but they didn't know that he was even interested because he's looking mm-hmm. down and he's, you know, coloring yeah. the entire time. So then I started being able to show him like, oh, you know how I'm going to know if you're listening to me in class? And start being able to draw him closer and closer to being able to communicate because that's what we're talking about is communication. Communicate what is going on in your world, which is you're with me. 
you're with me. You're actually listening to what I'm saying as your teacher. How can you communicate that you are listening to me? And it becomes about the connection of you are a person. Now, how do you want to communicate your personhood to me? Now, if you continue communicating in the way that you are communicating, the other people in your environment may not see you. And that doesn't mean that anyone's being malicious. It means that they're speaking a different language. You're speaking French and they're speaking Spanish. And in order to speak to someone who speaks Spanish, not everyone in in Spain needs to learn French. Sometimes someone who speaks French needs to learn Spanish. Now, that sounds very, very bad to say. Everyone should understand where this person's coming from. Mm -hmm. It doesn't therefore mean that anyone who speaks Spanish should say like French is a bad language. But people who are speaking Spanish how are they supposed to know French? And mm-hmm. if most people in a country speak a language, then that's the language that the country speaks. It's just, you know, that's part of languages. Language is a agreed upon uh, way of communicating that everyone it's agreed upon. That's, that's one of the definitions of language. Mm-hmm. So body language is a language. It's one of the skills. So the student has the choice how and if and when to use that skill. That as a therapist, I want to teach them a skill of communication. Then as the year went on, the student more and more and more recognized, oh, I want the other kids to talk to me. I have to look at them when they are engaging or when they're talking, when they're all sitting around, you know, by recess, they're about to start a soccer game and I'm standing there, but I'm not looking at anybody. They're not going to know that I want to play. Okay, so if I look at the person who's talking, then they're going to know I want to play. And he started experiencing the benefits of communicating the language that everyone was speaking. Now, did that mean that he had to work harder for that? Yeah, it was more challenging for him. It was. He had to work harder for that. Just like it was more challenging for the student whose parents only spoke Portuguese in the class and did not speak any, you know, Spanish or any, you know, I'm I'm using that same metaphor. But Mm -hmm. everyone has their challenges. And it doesn't therefore mean, you know, that... Uh, that he's better or worse or anything. It just means that that's a challenge that when he's trying to connect with another person, he might have to overcome more challenges. That's, you know, when I'm talking to my students and we talk about the challenge that they're experience, experiencing, because I, I don't believe that it's, you know, validating to them for me to be like, oh, this is, this is all honky dory because it's not, you know, it's not, it's not honest. It's some, some of it is challenging. That doesn't mean that it's all, you know, that there's nothing good about it. But there is challenge and to address it and to be like, you are creating yourself. You have this opportunity to create this capacity in your own heart to focus where someone else might not have to. But now when you give your, you know, your client their focus, you've really given a gift of yourself because you've worked to develop this or you've given, you know, your mom, you know, attention when she's talking to you and you've really given her a gift of your focus and her communicating to her in a way that she can understand. It's that's how I think of it. I think about it as really honestly love. It's it's a, it's all about love. It's all about the connection, and and it goes all it goes every way. You know, there isn't anybody who's um, who's free from perspective taking or free from self development or free from working. It's it's uh, everyone does it. That's really that's really what you know. That's why I work with you know, the therapist and the teachers and the parents, because we all, we all do it. And the more that the therapists are recognizing these tools and understanding how to integrate them in their own personal lives, the more they're able to actually share it with others. It's really incredible, beautiful thing to see. I think the analogy of, of different languages can be helpful because then it sounds more like there's not this 
this is right and this is wrong. And I think that that is the problem that I see with a lot of the way that interventions are done for for people who are working on these types of skills. It's kind of this black and white, this is the way we do it and this is the way you're supposed to do it. Or people will think you're weird versus these are the things and this is how you're coming across to, to someone and this is how you're being interpreted and it's a choice. Well, you don't mm-hmm. have to do anything like you can. That student could have chosen to continue that behavior and but know that other people might be confused by it because they're not perceiving it in the same way. I think that that, you know, how or how might other people interpret this can be helpful because then it really puts the ball in their court and they can make a choice versus you know, like a lot of times the way that I see it being done is, oh, you're going to be punished if you don't do this thing. Well, no, but this way you can choose because you're you're picking something if it's important to you versus somebody else is imposing it on you and telling you you have to act a certain way. That's And that's honestly because I don't think that I, as far as social situations, always felt super awkward. I still feel super awkward in a lot of social situations. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? I just don't feel like it right now. But in other situations, if I think, oh, you know what? It Like, I'm going to act in a certain way because I care about what how other people are feeling. Or mm-hmm. I have a specific goal. And I know that if I act this way, I'm not going to be able to achieve that goal that's important to me versus if I come across in this way, I will be able to accomplish it. And and that since that's important to me, I'm going to choose this behavior versus this other behavior. It's not a matter of, you know, like I think the biggest problem is when people are just the only thing they're worried about is people will think you're weird if you do that. Because to me, that's not like it's it's not coming from a very empowering place. But when it's oh, like this is. This is how this behavior might be interpreted. And this is what the other person might think and feel. You're you're coming from that connection piece and thinking about how you're feeling, but also thinking about how they're feeling. And I think that one of the most powerful ways to help someone be, I don't know, I guess accommodating to you is to try to understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And and that's really the thing that I... I think about a lot when I'm doing any type of therapeutic technique, you know, with uh, clients who stutter or clients who, um, you know, even the one with ADHD, like recognizing that we are all making choices, you know, we're all, there's always going to be a ramification to our choice, you know, to do it so that no one hates us, you know, maybe that's people pleasing or to do it because of connection. And I want to connect with somebody else. They won't be able to see me if I'm doing this very distracting thing. They're not going to be able to see who I am. I want to connect. My goal is connection and to choose again and again, you know, even in in, in our own personal relationships. Okay. Yeah. So like I could bring up that fight again, or I could choose connection in this moment. Mm-hmm. I could choose to, you know, what am I going to do within this exact space? Who, who do I want to be? Who do I want to show up as? Who do I want to, you know, how can I connect better? And that's really, I feel like, you know, if we can measure what success is in our therapy sessions, you know, again, like it's a, it's a process, but if we think about as therapists, how did I foster connection today? 
Mm-hmm. You know, how did I fall, develop skills for connection within my clients? How did I develop connection with my client? How did I help my client, con- you know, connect to their parents, connect to their uh, classmates, connect to their teachers better, connect to their academics better, understand their world, be able to relate and process what's going on in themselves and going on in, you know, in their environment. Like that is an incredible accomplishment. I think when you focus on that connection piece, it does help to prioritize a little bit, you know, like what are my, what's really my intention here? Is it to control someone's behavior or is it to give them choices that they can use to build better relationships? What we do for our clients is we provide tools for them, again, as you said, to choose. We want them to choose. We want to give people choices. We want to mm-hmm. give them opportunity. We're trying to open doors have opportunities to connect, have understanding and compassion and all self, you know, self-development. Self-development is, you know, a human's greatest accomplishment is the capacity that we can develop ourselves and become bigger and better people and, you know, go through challenges voluntarily. Like, you know, how often would you see, a, a you know, like a, a another be able to reach beyond who they are and do something kind for another. A human being can do that. We could say, I'm going to go through a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of, you know, saying things in a way that's not so comfortable because my spouse, it's easier for them to hear it. That word is triggering for them. And I can say it differently because I care and I love, and I can be bigger and expand myself because I want to be a bigger person and I want to be a compassionate person. Can you share where can people find out more about you and what you do? So I um I have a website, skillsforconnection.com. Um, or you could email me, uh, Miriam at skillsforconnection.com. And uh I have cohorts that start pretty re- uh pretty uh, often. Um, but as we go along, they do become more expensive. So it's worth uh registering now before you wait and the uh, prices go up. Yeah. Um and uh we do uh you know, I also do professional development if let's say you feel like your school could use that for the teachers or for the parents um, and being able to really create this uh, environment where connection and developing everything in our environment towards that goal. Our academics can start process through that way and our language and our socializations and our emotional processes can all be through that lens. So yeah, I have free uh, free demo. If you want to check that out, you can email me for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing from you guys. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I will include all of that contact information in the show notes on my website so that people can connect with you. Well, thank you again for being here with me today. Thank you, Karen. It's really, really uh, an honor. Thank you for having me. All right. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you of a couple things. Number one, the time tracking journal, if you want a tool to help guide you through some of the things that we were talking about today, such as discussing the pros and cons of a situation and really reflecting on behavior. I share some tools and strategies that you can use to do that in the time tracking journal. Specifically, the goal of this strategy is to help your kids be more independent with day-to-day tasks that require them to sequence multiple steps. But you can also use some of these strategies just to reflect on different social situations and 
different interactions they have with other people as well. So to get access to that tool, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrandon.com backslash time journal. Secondly, I wanted to remind you to check out the show notes on my website. Again, drkarendudekbrandon.com and you'll be able to go to the specific episode link with episode 37 and find out all the information about how to connect with Miriam. So please check that out if you want to learn more about what she does and how to implement some of the strategies that we discussed in the episode today. And then finally, remember that it helps us out so much if you leave us a five-star rating and review or share this episode with anyone you think would benefit from this information. For now, we'll wrap up. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in episode 38. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com backslash BE.